If you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to put some of the verses up on the screen. If you have an electronic Bible, that's fine too. Uh, we started, last week, we started our first series here at City Church. And uh, the series comes from Luke 15, very well-known passage of Scripture. In fact, many of you would probably know this passage of Scripture as the parable of the prodigal son. We've given it a different title. Well, we've called it the story of the missing son. And the reason we've called it that is that we think that the, that, that particular title ha- uh, conveys a twist that is coming in this series. And I, it's coming later on. I'll tell you about it later. There's a little twist in this that you need to see. And I think that title better, uh, uh, better conveys that twist. Uh, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus tells three stories about things or people that have been lost and that are found. We're spending five weeks uh, in this passage of Scripture, in the last of those three stories. Let me just give you a little brief review of where we were last week. We said last week there are two sons in this story. For those of you who might be new with us, there are two sons in the story. Two brothers in this story. Each of those two sons corresponds to the two groups of people that were listening to Jesus when he told this story. There's a younger son who corresponds to the tax collectors and sinners who were around Jesus when he told this story. Those are people who uh, had sort of jettisoned all of the traditional cultural and religious standards of the day. That's why they were called sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Then there's an older son in the story. And the older son corresponds to the religious people uh, in, in, G, in, uh, in Israel at that time. Okay, so a younger son and an older son. And they correspond to the two groups of people who are listening to this particular story when Jesus tells it. But we also said that if you look at this from a broader perspective, that what you see is that each son represents one of the two approaches that people take to life. Uh, one group represented by the younger son, there's a group of people that, oh, uh, some sociolo- sociologists would call them expressive individualists. These are people who um, want nothing to do with religion. They don't believe in absolute truth. They reject truth. They are relativists. They believe truth is relative. Everyone should be able to determine what's right and wrong for their own. They're represented by the younger son in the story. And then the other group, represented by the older son in this story, and we see them today, there are people that embrace religion. Uh, they're, they're, we would call them moralists. So you have expressive individualists represented by the younger son and then moralists uh, represented by the older son in the story. Moralists are people that are, you know, they're good citizens. They're, they're moral, responsible people. They're religious. They go to church, you know, all of those kind of people. Now, the interesting thing is that if you were to ask each group of people today, what's wrong with the world? They'd tell you it's the other group, Right? So if you ask people today that, are, that, that would uh, subscribe to expressive individualism, if you ask them, what's wrong with the world today? They'd say, well, it's all those religious people. They're the problem. They think they got the truth. And they are always want to shove it down your throat. And, and they're like very judgmental people. And then if you ask the moralist, you said, well, what's, what's the problem with the world? They'd say, well, it's all those crazy expressive individualist kind of people. They don't believe in any truth. They just do whatever they want to do and look at where the world is going because of them, right? So they each say that the other group is the problem. Jesus says, though, here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus makes it clear that both are flawed and that both philosophies of life are wrong and that both need to repent. But he does say, and this is where he turns 
our entire understanding of Christianity upside down. Some of you will be very surprised by this. He does say that it's the older son types, the religious types, the moralists, he says, are the most lost of all. Because they don't think they're lost. They're so good, they don't think they could possibly be lost. Now next week we're going to look at how the older son in the story, the moralist, we're going to look at how he's lost. Today I want to focus though on the younger son in the story, the expressive individualist type. I want to, I want to just see how he's lost in this story. And I want you to be watching for something here in this passage as we go through it. I want you to be watching for something. Here's what I want you to watch. There is a moment in this story where the younger son, who's the expressive individualist, there's a moment where he flips and he becomes a moralist. And I want you to be watching and see if you can see when that happens in this story, okay? Okay, now let me just, before we look at it, let me just say one more thing. I want to look today at what what it is that's lost about this youngest son. What causes him to be lost? And what I want you to see is that the youngest son is lost because he has a commitment to self-salvation. That's where he's lost. And that's the theme that runs through this whole story. He's lost in his commitment to self-salvation. And specifically, in the first part of the story, here's how that manifests itself. He believes that he must save himself from the Father's authority in order to find happiness and fulfillment in his life. Okay, now, what do I mean by that? Watch this. Verse uh, 12, Luke chapter 15 uh, verse 12, Jesus wastes no time in getting into the story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The verse 12, he says, the younger one, okay, that's the one we're talking about, the expressive individualist type. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, uh, the word give there, you, you can see it even in the English text. It's an imperative verb. It means that he's not asking his father for an in- his inheritance. He's demanding that his father give him the inheritance. And if you'd have been there in the first century when Jesus was telling this story, you would have heard a collective gasp in the audience because you did not do that. You absolutely never did. I'm not sure in our culture today that you could really do it in a very, uh, in a very polite or gracious way, but you absolutely did not do it in the first century. When a father died, when he died... His older son would get uh, twice the inheritance as the younger son. So, so like if you, had, if you had two sons, right, the, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son would get one-third of the inheritance. But it only happened when the father died. Make sure you understand that. Only happened when the father died. This, what he's asking, what this son is doing is unheard of disrespect in that culture. It was the equivalent, get this, it was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead. Now, why does he, why does the younger son feel that? Why, why does he feel like he's got to come to his father and say, give me my share of the estate? Why does he feel so strongly about that? Watch, verse 13. I think we get a clue from verse 13. The text says, not long after. So the father does it. The father gives him a third of the estate. He says in verse 13, not long after that, 
the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered a third of the family's fortune uh, in wild living. What you get is the sense that this boy, this young man, decided that there was something that he wanted, that there was some set of things that he wanted that he had to have that underneath his father's authority uh, he would never get. Let me read you this. This is a quote from uh, this guy, guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan wrote this uh, 100 years ago. He said, This demand was a revelation of the fact that the youngest son had lost confidence in his father. There was in his mind an idea that his father stood between him and something that he supremely desired, which he considered would be better for him than the things that it was possible for him to have in the father's house and under the father's restraint. Now, you get this, right? In other words, he's, he's like, he's like, if I stay under my father's authority, I'm going to miss out. Uh, there are things out there that are going to provide a great deal of happiness and fulfillment for me that I will never be able to experience if I stay with my father. And so he has to, he has to save himself. Right? That's what he feels. He's got to save himself from his father's authority. And this, of course, is it's the dominant philosophy of our age, isn't it? There was a time in America where uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic was sort of standard. Most people, most people lived by a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, be very, very careful, because I'm not saying that I think that there was a time in America where America was a Christian nation. I'm saying that there was a time when America was Christianized. People, people were likely, most people were likely not Christ followers, but they were Christianized. They were familiar enough with Christianity that uh, a Christian way of living a Christian standard, Christian standards of right and wrong were generally accepted in society. But that's not true today. It's no longer true. Last year, in fact, the Pew Forum did a study on religion in America. Listen to this. Far away, what they found is the fastest growing religion, uh, the fastest growing belief system in America was, get this, no religion, which is a belief system, but no religion. It's the fastest growing belief system in America. And they said this. They said, it is the one with the most potential to reshape American society in the 21st century. This is what what the younger son is doing, what he believes, the way he's living his life, his philosophy, his approach to life is the dominant philosophy in America today. In fact, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in truth, if you study, care about, believe that the Bible is true, uh, you are eyed today with great suspicion about both your intellect as well as your motives. In fact, just last Christmas, you guys know, uh, most of you guys would know the atheist author and professor Richard Dawkins, very famous, said this at Christmas last year. This is his way of celebrating the holidays. He said, raising a child in a Christian home is worse than subjecting that child to sexual abuse. That's what he said. That's what he said. This is the dominant philosophy of people in our culture today. The strong belief that many people in our society have today that to place oneself under the authority of God as revealed in the Bible is a tragic mistake. And that we've got to save ourselves and we've got to save other people from such limited and mistaken and closed-minded thinking. And this is precisely what the younger son believes. 
But Jesus teaches through this story, he teaches that to save oneself from God's authority is to be utterly lost and that it leads to personal decay. Um, Look at what happens to the son in the story. Verse 14. After he had spent a third of the family's fortune, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him um, anything. Leads to personal destruction for the son. Listen to this. I think uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing, and I, I think it's possible that he has this particular story in mind as he writes, and he just elaborates. So here we see in this story, we see, like, we see what happens personally when a person rejects the authority of God. But I want you to listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about what happens societally when a society rejects God. He says, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he says, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then he says, and just think about like the news. Think about the news. Whatever news station you watch, think about it as we read this. Think about uh, the real housewives of wherever as we read this, Okay. Or think about, I mean, I know the show's canceled, but think about like Jersey Shore or whatever those, whatever shows, you know, whatever the kind of reality show that you dig is. Watch this. He says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Welcome to City Church, by the way. (laughs) Sound familiar? Uh, It sounds like our culture. And Jesus is teaching that this particular philosophy of expressive individualism, he's saying, he's saying that philosophy is flawed primarily because it's based on a commitment to self-salvation. When a man individually or a culture collectively rejects God, all that that man or all that that culture has left is himself or themselves. And that always leads down to a downward spiral of despair and depravity. It always does. And by the way, it's, it's really fascinating to me in this particular passage that, that when Jesus wants to give us an example of what it means to be lost, he doesn't take us to a rapist. He doesn't take us to a serial killer. All he does is he takes us to a young man that says, just give me my life and leave me the heck alone. That's, that's what he takes us to when he says, I want you to understand what it means to be lost. Just give me my life. And leave me the heck alone. But I want you to watch what happens now as we move into the second half of his story. The son soon discovers that life outside the father's authority is not what he had hoped. If you read the intervening verses, you would see that. Um, we saw already that he squanders his wealth. He, 
He has to get a job, and the only job that he can get is as a pig farmer, which would have been the ultimate humiliation to a Jew. And he's starving. And so he concocts this plan as he goes back to his father. Look at verse 18. Watch the plan that he concocts. He says, I will set out, and I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then watch this. He says, make me like one of your hired men. Now pay close attention to that last part of verse 19. Remember what I told you that I wanted you to be watching for in this passage. I wanted you to be watching for the moment that this young man switches from the philosophy of the expressive individualist and becomes a moralist. I wanted you to watch for that. And this is that moment. Here he was. He was doing his own thing, man, doing what feels good. And then all of a sudden, life doesn't go the way he wants it to do. And he becomes, he switches, he completely changes, and he becomes a moralist in this moment. Now that he recognizes that his philosophy has led him to personal ruin, he flips to the other side, and he becomes a moralist. Notice, he's terribly ashamed of himself. He's terribly ashamed of his failure. But what I want you to notice is that in this switch from being an expressive individualist to being a moralist, here's what I want you to notice. He's still committed to his own self-salvation. And here's why. He believes, and we get this from the last part of verse 19, he believes that he has to save himself from the father's rejection by working off his debt. That's what he means when he says, make me like one of your hired servants. He's saying, Dad, I'll go to work for you. Uh, I'll work hard, and I'm going to earn my way back into your approval. And that flip that he makes is actually very, it's a very common tendency that people have. To go from one philosophy of, i got to find life outside of my father, to I'm going to earn my way back to the Father. It's part of the natural human instinct to save yourself, but to do it from the opposite philosophy. So here he was saving himself by being an expressive individualist, and all of a sudden he's like, now i got to save myself by being a moralist. I, I read you a quote a little while ago. I read, read you this quote from, uh, it was over 100 years ago. Let me read one to you now from over 300 years ago. All right? Listen to this. A guy by the name of George Whitfield. He was an Anglican uh, priest. Uh, And he, he writes this. He says, When some person is awakened to God, he immediately flies to his duties and performances to hide himself from God. I'm going to go on, but just let me stop there for just a moment. He says, to hide himself from God. He doesn't want God to see how bad he is. So he says, I can, I can self-improve. I, I can do it. I, I, can, I can save myself. I'll work myself back into your approval, God. He says he does it to hide himself from God, and he goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. Says he, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all I can. And then certainly God will have mercy on me. He goes on, he says, but before you can experience the peace of the gospel, you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer that you ever put up. You must be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God, are so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul, that he will see them to be filthy, rags. 
And when he says filthy rags, he's referring to a passage in Isaiah chapter 64 where Isaiah says that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like um, filthy rags. See, the son's idea, both ways, he's committed to self-salvation. He starts out, I've got to save myself from my father's authority. And then he says, I've got to save myself from the father's rejection. He's going to fix it. See, he's going to fix it. Where, where is his confidence? It's all in himself. And I, and I want to just does that sound familiar to any of you? Those of you who are here this morning, you might, some of you might consider yourselves to be, oh, you, you might consider yourself to be curious outsiders to Christianity. You're here, somebody invited you. Um, here with a family member, here with a friend. Um, maybe it's your first time here. Maybe it's your first time ever in church. Maybe it's the first time in a long time. I don't know. But you would be a curious outsider to Christianity. My guess is that your understanding of Christianity is that you have to, like, if you wanted to be a part of Christianity, that you've got to clean your life up and you've got to get right with God. Because that's probably what you've heard about Christianity. Like, you know, you've got to get right with God, clean yourself up. On the other hand, for those of you who are established insiders to Christianity, uh, you may genuinely believe in Christ's atoning sacrifice for your sins, at least your sins when you were converted, when you first became a Christian. But now, now that you've been a Christian for a while, when you blow it, like when you, when you really blow it, you, you know, you commit some major sin and, and, and you blow it in some way that you're ashamed of, you think to yourself, I'll bet you, many of you think to yourself, uh, I got to clean myself up. I, I got to make restitution to God. I got to show him that I'm really sorry for what I did and I, that I feel really bad about it. And I got to feel some guilt and I got to do some things before I can come back and establish my relationship with God. I got to clean myself up. And I want you to know that that's the very essence of religious moralism. Which is as committed to self-salvation as expressive individualism is. It's the same thing. And understand that this is the pattern of of most Christians. You know, you, you step out from underneath your father's authority. You sin in some way because you think, well, there's something better out there than my father would give me. And then all of a sudden you recognize that you failed and then you flip over and you become a moralist and you feel like you got to feel guilty and clean yourself up. But I want you to notice what happens in this story. Um... Jesus says that the father does something unthinkable in this story. Uh, I don't, I'm a father. I've got three boys. I'd like to think I'd do that like this father did. But if, if, if of course, we don't have much wealth. But, but if, like, if one of my kids, if I gave him a third of the wealth and then he went and he squandered it, uh, I'd like to think that I'd do what this father does, but I'm not sure that I would. <laughs> I'm really not sure. I gotta tell you something. When my kids were little, one time they asked us. They, they asked me. They said, "Dad, how much money do we make?" And I said, "We make nothing." <laughs> I, 
I make money, you make nothing. You have nothing. You have no money. Make sure you understand that, guys. Anyway, um, I'd like to think I do what this father does, but, I, but Jesus has this father do the unthinkable. Before the son ever gets to the father to give him this great confession, the father, Jesus has the father pounce on the son and he just he starts to kiss him. And then he says, in verse 21, look at this. Verse 21, the, father says, or the son says to the father, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if you were to read on, before he gets to the whole part about how he's going to work for his dad and, and dad hire me on as a servant, before he ever gets to that, the father cuts him off. He's hugging him and he's kissing him. And then he says to one of his servants, he says, he's bring my robe and, and, and bring a ring for his finger and, and sandals for his feet, all of which were, were symbolic of, of renewed relationship. And, and he commands a sacrifice in verse 23 to be made uh, so that they can throw a big feast for the son. What's the point in all of that? The point is That the son never has to get to the point of, I got to work, I got to clean myself up for you, God. Because Jesus is teaching that whether you're an expressive individualist or a moralist, what he's teaching is that both philosophies are flawed because they're both based on self salvation. The son doesn't have to work himself back into the father into a relationship with the Father. The Father does all of that before the Son ever has a chance to say, I'll clean myself up, Dad. I'll get myself right. I'll work for you. Never has to say that. Now, like you're probably thinking, look, if, if, there's, if there's only two choices in life, if I can be an expressive individualist or I can be a moralist, and you're telling me that Jesus is saying both of those philosophies are flawed, what do I do? Where's the hope? Understand that Jesus says that there is a third philosophy. And it's altogether different than expressive individualism and moralism. And it's not something that any human being would ever think of. And it's called Christianity. And he's saying no human being would ever think of it because the thing about Christianity is that the operative word in Christianity is grace. It's grace. Christianity is altogether different from expressive individualism, but it's also altogether different from moralism, from religion, because it's not based on the idea of self-salvation. In fact, notice this. Nothing, the point of the story, nothing, not even abject contrition for this son, nothing merits the favor of God. Of God. That's why the Father goes to him before he cleans himself up, before he suggests that he go to work, because nothing merits the favor of God. In Christianity, Jesus teaches that it is that God's love for you and God's acceptance of you is not a function of your goodness. It's not a function of your sincerity or your performance or your perfection. It is a function of God's goodness and God's perfection and God's performance. The operative word in Christianity is grace. It's not self-salvation. But grace is costly. 
And Jesus hints at this, at the price of grace, when he has the father in the story ask for the fattened calf to be killed. And this is referred to twice in the passage of Scripture, once in in verse 23 and then once in the story of the older son. And I want you to notice in that that the father pays the price from his own cattle, a sacrifice from his own wealth, to pay for the son's rebellion. And of course, that's what the Bible says happened on the cross. That God the Father paid for the rebellion of humanity, for our commitment to self-salvation, through the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed on the cross for our sins so that we could experience grace. Somebody said it this way one time. I love how they put it. They said, in sin, man substitutes himself for God. But in salvation, God substitutes himself for man. And some of you here this morning, like you're off in the distant country. Some of you, um, you know, you're like the younger son. Like you wanted so much to get out from underneath the father's authority because you're like, there's a whole life out there that, that I want and I can't get it if I'm living according to the scriptures and all of that. And then maybe things didn't go the way that you hoped that they'd go. Jesus would say through this story, he would say to you, you need a savior. And that's an inescapable truth. And if you've never come to a place where you've accepted what Christ did for you on the cross, this would be a good time. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to get right with God. God's love and acceptance for you is based on who he is, not on who you are, not on your performance. Just accept what Jesus did on the cross for you. And then there are some of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior, but, but you don't live it. Functionally, and by, when I say you don't live it, I don't mean that you're not a good person. I don't mean that you're like, li- you're, you may not be living like the younger son. You might be, I mean, you may, you're in church and you, you know, you read your Bible and, and you uh, try to live a good life and all of that stuff. But functionally, you're still committed to self-salvation. Because every time you blow it, every time that you do something that you know is wrong, you feel this enormous guilt and you live with this self-condemnation and you start striving to earn your way back into the Father's good graces. You need a Savior too. Listen, listen, you got to get this. The same peace that you felt when you entered Christianity because you learned that you were saved by grace, that same peace that you felt then is the same peace that you have to live with, that you need to live with. You need to preach that same peace 
of the gospel to yourself every single day. When you wake up in the morning, you preach the gospel to yourself again, and you do it all day long. I am saved by grace. I am accepted by the Father, not because of my performance, not because of my work, but because of God and who He is and the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. The same peace that you felt when you entered Christianity is the same peace that carries you through the rest of your life. It's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. You've got to look at the cross and keep preaching to the cross to yourself every single day. That's where peace is found, at the cross.